The only argument I can give for it as a jobs program, which is important to some small rural communities. This is part of why charter schools or voucher schools have never really got through in Texas when they have in most other conservative states. It's because the rural voting block is larger there and a lot of these towns actually basically rely on the public school system as a jobs program. It's also important for feeding like really poor kids. Basically, it can be an important way to get kids food. But other than that, I'd say, I mean, Let's let's talk about how like actually insane it is. We we live in a world, I mean video was invented a long time ago, but we have video, we have internet, we can record lectures of like the best lecturers in the world. We have VR environments now and kids are still learning by sitting in rooms with a bunch of other kids and having like a physical adult stand at the front of the room and lecture to them. That is the primary form of education happening in these schools. That is like, it's not like behind the times, it's like 50, 60 years behind the times. It is, it is wild how antiquated it is. How do young men like us optimize our lives in a way that lets us achieve success and meaning? Come with me as I interview top performers and delve into key areas of life. Habits, finance, psychology, health, relationships, work, creativity, and business. I boil the ocean of men's advice into usable wisdom in this podcast to give you the answers. My name is Blake Bottrell, and this is The Distilled Podcast. My guest today is one half of the husband and wife team that takes the word partnership to its truest form. Together, they're working to make pragmatism great again, sound the alarm on demographic collapse, fight everything we know about education, and do it all while raising enough kids to fill a 20th century schoolhouse. Malcolm Collins, welcome to the show. I, I'm glad that you started by looking at Acton because um, my take, you know, in looking at the educational world, the thing I was really shocked about was how few genuinely novel solutions have been tried. Like I suspected that like a lot of stuff was being tried in this space um, and it just wasn't. Uh, it, 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 and Acton is one of the, so you, what you will have, like in terms of what people will do, they'll typically like move a slider on more or less structure. Um, but that's really it, you know, it was like the high end of more structure being like military schools and the high end of less structure being unschooling. But I, I don't think that that's the answer. I mean, I think that the answer is going to be a, a, a completely new structure. Um, Acton is the closest to a really replicable, like high quality structure that I've seen out there other than our system. So it's the only place other than the system that we have developed for the Collins Institute, which goes live at the end of this year, uh, that I would recommend that people check out. Um, uh, but there was, yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly wild to me how bad things have gotten with education. We did a, a longer podcast on this and like we have, there's, there's a number of reasons why things have evolved so slowly, despite the high ceiling. I mean, as we learned from Laszlo Polgar, um, and we talk about why, even though it looks like an anecdotal evidence, it's not really anecdotal evidence because it was pre-called. It was a pre-called unlikely scenario, uh, which is very different from typical anecdotal evidence. Um, and uh, what we learn is that, you know, you might be able to achieve outcomes that are hundreds of folds better than the existing educational system with regularity if you alter the way that you're doing things. Um, and so, uh, so, so as to why things are so bad, the two big ones are, and we talked about this, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, he made a $100 million donation to the Newark school system, um, and over half of it had to go to a bribe to the teachers union, just to allow the other half of it to be spent 
um, giving teachers who were performing better in terms of like test assessment more money. Um, like that is how corrupt the teachers unions are and how much they have retarded any form of development. That it has become mainstream within democratic politics to say that like charter schools aren't obviously better. I think just to me shows how much control they have throughout the academic pipeline when the um, the data is so clear if you look at the data. Now, if, if, if the other thing that's really important to note about the education system, and we've talked about this before as well, is that educational PhD programs, the, the head of um, our nonprofit, uh, the, the Pronatalist Foundation, uh, recently started at Harvard Business School. I mean, she's been like, wow, like it's bad. Like, um, if, if you go to and you look at what's being taught at these schools, it was something like one of them they were looking at something like seventy percent was basically just like social ideology, and and then even some of the classes they were having on education was stuff that has since been disproven and is just like old like legacy beliefs about education. And this was at like major high quality universities you were seeing this, and I think that this is why if you look at the average IQ of people going into different PhD programs. Education is typically at the very bottom or near the very bottom. Uh, one of the, the things I was looking at um, showed that the average PhD in education's IQ was 100. Um, so so a population average is what you need to, to get a PhD in education. And um, given that a lot of this training is ideological, you know, you then go into the field, you go into these charities, and these people are almost, uh, I wouldn't say almost, I, I would say almost transparently more interested in spreading their ideology than they are in improving student outcomes. Um, so yeah, it's a very interesting dilemma. And I think um, over the sort of course of this conversation, we'll probably rightfully denigrate the public school system a little bit. But um, as, as far as it's good to be fair for people who aren't ultra utilitarian and sort of the approach to um, this sort of discussion. Can you give me sort of the like steel man argument in your estimation for the current public school education as it still exists today? There's literally none. It's a jobs program. <laughs> That's uh, the only argument I can give for it as a jobs program, which is important to some small rural communities. Um, this is part of why chartered schools or voucher schools have never really got through in Texas when they have in most other conservative states. It's because um, uh, the rural voting block is larger there, and um, a lot of these towns actually basically rely on the public school system as a jobs program. It's also important for feeding, like, really, uh, uh, you know, uh, poor kids, basically. It can be an important way to get kids food. Um, but other than that, I'd say – I mean – Let's let's talk about how like actually insane it is. We we live in a world. I mean, video was invented a long time ago, but we have video, we have internet, we can record lectures of like the best lecturers in the world. Um, we have VR environments now, and kids are still learning by sitting in rooms with a bunch of other kids and having like a physical adult stand at the front of the room and lecture to them. That is the primary form of education happening in these schools. That is like, it's not like behind the times, it's like 50, 60 years behind the times. It is, it is wild how antiquated it is. Um, one, of, one of my favorite studies, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, it was with Peter Gray where he was doing unschooling. And for people who aren't familiar with unschooling, it's, you know, pe people who do literally nothing for their kids. Um, I, I don't mean this in a negative context exactly. I mean, I don't exactly support unschooling, but it's really cool because it allows us to get um, a good baseline. 
what would happen to kids if you just didn't intervene in their education at all? And what we know is they get into college at higher rates than kids who go through public school, and they graduate college at higher rates than kids who go through public school. They have better mental health. They, like, among any measure you can measure, any metric you can measure, it's better to do literally nothing than public school. Um, now, I, I should note that his study did not Socio correct for socioeconomic yeah. status. Yeah, but it shouldn't even yeah. be close. Like doing nothing shouldn't even be close to outcompeting, uh, you know, this program that uh, you know I think really is is similar to putting our kids in a in a prison system, um, and and you know it's using the, basically the same contractors, right? It's a it's a pathway for a lot of kids. Um, you know, there's one one academic system that I've been working on. Um, and I don't want to go into the name of this, but I'm like affiliated with them. And, and uh, so what they did is they took kids who were being um, from from poor neighborhoods who were being kicked out of uh, local public schools, um, you know, who were going to be kicked out that hadn't been kicked out yet um, because they, you know, they work with the local public school to know who these kids are. And uh, if, if you if you're aware of this, if you have a GED versus having a school degree, um, a school degree gets you much higher jobs and stuff like that, much higher pay. So uh, what they would do is they would allow these kids to just go basically work in a room on a computer um, where they had like a room and they had guards and it was just like a room where the kids would go. But they would get an official school degree. Uh, they'd have a hundred percent graduation rate. Um, uh, the only kid who didn't graduate died in a car crash. Um, so these are the kids who the school system said, we're getting rid of you, uh, because you are so bad. And what it turns out is this isn't just a thing for gifted kids or something like that. This is hurting every, uh, layer of the socioeconomic strata to the extent where if you're talking about the bottom layers, the public school system has, has literally become like a pipeline into the prison system. It is horrible. And, and as a country, if we could just shut down all education and open food centers that kids could go to instead, we would be uh, many, many fold better. Is it ever possible to, and, and you know this, is that the, the unions are the, the biggest problem in terms of stifling innovation, but do we ever see a world where it's possible to innovate in a union environment? To me, the biggest or one of the biggest predictors of, of innovation, right, is agency. And then um, unions are sort of diametrically opposed to the idea of agency, having people requiring collective bargaining to act, to um, advocate for themselves. Are we just past the point of no return here or is there just... Uh... Yeah, so I, I think that there's certain types of unions within certain types of environments where they can definitely work with... Uh, uh, organizations. So, for example, I think that this is true of unions that are bargaining with privately held companies um, and sometimes even publicly held companies. Uh, I think if you're talking about public sector unions, uh, you know, like like teachers unions, stuff like that, there's just nothing you could do because they don't actually have they can literally fail kids at an astronomical amount and face no real repercussions for it. They, with a company, at least the union needs to make sure the company doesn't go out of business. You know, um, with teachers' unions, that is not the case. Um, and what they're optimizing for, as we saw with, you know, the bribes required for these changes with the Zuckerberg uh, donation, um, that the union wouldn't even allow teachers who were getting better results to be paid more. Like, that was considered beyond the pale for them. And I think that when you see that kind of stifling, it really is a, no, we create the status hierarchy and culture among teachers. This is no longer even about 
you know, um, helping teachers as a group. It's about ensuring that they have social control and control over the teacher body. Um, and so uh, I, I would say categorically not, but fortunately they have now made the school system so bad that um, when we are, like the school system that we're building out, my wife and I, that I have really high confidence in, um, that when we go live, not only will we be dramatically less expensive to operate than the existing school system and be able to act as a local jobs program, but uh, we will uh, 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 outcompete them to such a degree where even people of modest means will be able to, you know, hopefully in voucher states they can pay for us, but will be almost compelled to take their kids out of the public school system just when they look at differential outcomes. Um, and, and I think that that's just the thing. If you release a system out there that is getting such extremely differentiated outcomes, um, there's a point at which just no parents are sending their kids to public schools anymore. And it becomes a negative status thing. Like, do you not love your kids? Why are you sending them to the, the, the public school system? Um, and I do believe, given the way that we've set it up, that we can eventually make it free for everyone because it is so low cost to operate, especially in the age of AI in terms of these like new, better educational models. So I, I think they're, they're going to drive themselves to extinction. And the, the, our favorite line on our podcast, Based Camp, is um, we are, are very fortunate that we're in a timeline where our enemies um, are, are not as competent as they are malicious. That's a, that's a pretty solid line. And just uh, one more point to sort of drive this home before we sort of jump into the Collins Institute is... Um, like just in case anybody needs more proof that the administration doesn't really have your kids' priorities on their mind, uh, you brought a quote up on the podcast um, from the head of the American Teachers Federation, a guy named Al Shanker, yeah. that basically just said, uh, when school children start paying union dues, that's when we'll start representing school children. And I heard you say that, and I was like, okay, that sent a chill, uh, chill down my spine. Like, these are the people that I'm supposed to give my kids to for eight hours a day? How is this in any way aligned with any of my values? Yep. Uh, just so you know, the current progressive dogma on that quote is that it is anachronistic, but that was only determined to be... It was a quote made in the 70s, like 75 or something. Everyone believed it was a real quote, and as of, like, 2005, it became officially anachronistic. And I'm like, that's awfully suspicious. Um, I, I think it was probably a real quote. Uh, so I've, I've done a lot of deep dive into this quote to try to find out, you know, um, it was reported, um, on, uh, people in his orbit say he probably didn't say exactly that he would have had more tact, but that is definitely in line with his thinking of students. But it also makes sense. I mean, it is literally their job. Like it's, 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 we've got to think about the, um, organizations and individuals always behave in accordance with their incentive structure. Um, and this may not be true at first. Like if, if I started an organization for the first 10, 20 years, you know, it's not going to behave in a, you know, people's independent will will matter. But once an organization reaches a certain size and, and has been around for a certain period of time, it will always fall into behavior patterns that are associated with its incentive structure because individual human will can no longer override that incentive structure. And that's what we see happening with the, the teachers unions. And, and it's important to remember, like, what's the teachers union's incentive structure? Uh, political control, like you have to capture at least one political party. You have to uh, ensure that 
the teachers who are, are going to vote for you, like the people who you are into office. This is something like we've talked to a lot of teachers. Teachers at public schools, there's many good people who go into teaching at public school, right? Um, but they often get sort of beaten out and, and, and they get beaten out because the teachers unions are set up in such a way that they often end up rewarding um, the teachers who have less of the students' best interest at heart, but more of this uh, political bureau bureaucratic playing um, at, at heart, especially when you're talking about the low level teachers. This isn't always as true if you're talking about like the principals or the superintendents. Like these people often genuinely care more. But if you're talking about like the long tenured, you know, 20, 30 year teacher, um, this is true. Why is it possible to create a genius? Uh, so I don't know if it is possible to create a genius. So one of the things that we talk about, so we have written multiple books. Um, one of our books could be said to be culturally deterministic, take a cultural determinist view, uh, but we're all also known for, for uh, believing that genes play a big role in outcomes. Um, you know, all of the naughty thoughts. I think that a person's culture plays a really big role in outcomes. I think that a person's genetics plays a really big role in outcomes. Um, and I think that... Uh, uh, it may also be possible to create geniuses in spite of that. Uh, but I, but I do think that a lot of this is preset. So, um, I think then that the real way that you create a genius, and this is sort of our approach to child rearing and, and focusing on kids is, uh, you can think of a kid like a seed to a tree or something like that. Um, now, this actually isn't how fruit trees grow, but we're just going to pretend like this is. Most fruit trees are actually grafts. We'd get into that later. Um, but let's say fruit trees grew from seeds. Um, uh, you can't really change what kind of fruit tree is going to come from the seed that you planted. You can change the soil composition. You can make it more acidic, more basic. You can change the amount of water it gets. You can... Um, do a lot of things to allow that individual tree to thrive. But, you know, if you try to make an apple tree a pear tree, you're probably going to end up killing the tree. Um, and where this, this actually gets a little more interesting is I also argue that sort of after middle school is when you then are entering the grafting process, which you're then saying, okay, well, we do need you to grow into something that is uh, deployable within society, right? Um, but this, this philosophy means that uh, culturally and genetically, some kids are just more likely to become geniuses than other kids. And what you as a parent can do is mess that up. Or what you as a teacher can do is mess that up. And so you want a school system that allows them, and I, and I suspect that the number is actually a lot higher than people think. I think that we could probably get genius level outcomes from like 20% of students. Um, uh, but the goal is, is to use whatever they have an internal motivation for and um, real world success, like their ability to see that they're able to have real world action ability to sort of in inflame um, that passion, uh, 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 to kindle that passion. Um, however, at the same time, I think what's really important is giving them, when we talked about cultural determinism, I think that a lot of the culture that's taught in schools, I think this is one of the biggest things that's holding kids down, uh, puts kids in really, really bad cultural context that makes success very, very difficult. Um, so, you know, you've got to teach um, an internal locus of control from the earliest days, from the, the way that learning itself is structured for the kids, which is really not done today. Uh, but there's other things. I mean, if you look at historically, you know, when kids play or play rough, what they're doing is they are sorting out boundaries for each other. 
Um, and so uh, there was this movement that I think really started within my generation uh, where it was no matter what happens, always run and tell an authority figure, right? Always run and tell an authority figure. If somebody punches you, if somebody is bullying somebody else, you know, always run and tell an authority figure. This is not the way that, that kids were taught historically, you know, they, in a lot of these districts, it was you, you sorted out yourself of a, of a little kids being picked on, then it's your job to physically intervene because you're sort of learning your social roles and how to interact and stuff like that. Now this always go tell an authority figure. Um, I, I think it's had an enormous impact on our society's culture where people, um, when they see in, injustice in the world, their response to that injustice is either collective mob action or um, appeal to a hypothetical authority instead of uh, themselves working to, to make the world a better place. Um, and it has, has, I think, created this, this almost this new form of activism, which is really not about any sort of uh, productivity in, in real world environments, um, but more of uh, almost like team sports fights on the Internet. Uh, you can think of it. Um, and so I, I could go into a lot of this, but I think that when you teach people and school does teach this, you know, if you're going to school and the way that you're being graded is by an arbitrary authority figure based on sort of preset answers, you are not learning to compete in real world environments. Uh, you are learning to appease a bureaucrat, right? Um, and th that's not going to have an outcome in a person's ability to eventually compete in real world context. I just think it's comical. Um, yeah, I, I could go. I could go further on this, but yeah. No, it's great. Well, there's definitely some follow-ups to that. But like before we get exactly into this, um, is this Collins? Is the Collins Institute a classic founder case of needing to solve your own problem, or is there a bigger um, why behind? the actual introduction of this new system that you and Simone are putting together? It was completely to solve our own problem. Um, I mean, we're best known for running pronatalist.org and, and sort of being the public face of the pronatalist movement. Um, and so we want to have a lot of kids and I can't afford to educate all my kids. There's no way I can afford to give, you know, 13 kids the, the type of education that I would want them to have, right? Um, so uh, we're like, okay, can we build a system that is inexpensive and scalable um, and preservative of an individual's culture? Um, so these are all things that we need, but this is something that a lot of people need in, in, in the world right now, you know? Um, and it's something that, uh, it, it's actually really interesting, uh, you know, running the Pronatalist Foundation, you know, uh, we, we talk with investors, about our school system sometimes and they're like oh um i mean you must know more than anyone that you know uh, the, the number of kids is falling this seems like a really bad industry to be focused on right and and what i point out to them is i'm like yes it is true that the number of kids is is declining but the percentage of kids being born to uh, politically centrist or conservative families is exploding. And the number of educational institutions that cater to that demographic is astronomically small. Um, if you look at the traditional boarding schools, if you look at the traditional private schools, they are all very, very, very left to center in their ideological leanings. Um, and increasingly, and I'm, I'm like, look, VCs, go talk to your friends and they'll see the problem. And they go and they talk and everyone's terrified, but there isn't a great other solution right now. Yeah. So obviously you're coming at this um, totally from that lens and then also the sort of pragmatist lens of like, hey, we just need to create something better. So talk to me about sort of the the core mechanisms that are at 
the the center of this teaching system you've got this like sort of gamified node system you've got like a self-referential yeah. library of resources and then this additional dynamic resource or reward system on top of all that to sort of solve for uh the intrinsic extracts in intrinsic extrinsic motivation extra yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so i'll go so, through all this really quickly uh okay so uh i'll just i'll just spit it uh here okay so uh we have divided the uh, educational system so uh middle school and high school the secondary education system although we'll probably go to I, i've been thinking more about it and it might actually start when kids can start to read because i want to get my kids in it as early as possible so we're just like okay we'll just have it start there um so we've divided that entire educational paradigm into a series of mastery nodes. Uh, like these are the specific skills that you're mastering as you're moving through this grade. Um, and then we've built that into like a tech tree or a skill tree like you would see in a video game. If you are not familiar with that concept, think of like an ancestry tree uh, sort of in your head um, where you have specific nodes and then you complete the nodes to unlock nodes above. And then sometimes these nodes like recoalesce into single nodes. Um, Duolingo actually uh, does a, a sort of similar model, um, but less expansive than what we're building. Um, so you move through these as a student, you, you're sitting down at sort of your portal every morning and you're saying, okay, what am I going to study today? What do I want to focus on today? And when you click on a node, uh, you get an option to book a test whenever you want to book a test on that subject um, to see if you complete that mastery level. And then below that is a series of potential resources where you could learn that information. Uh, which would be like a Reddit thread or like a, more like a Hacker News thread, actually, because it's a series of links. You vote on the ones that you found most useful to you after the test. Your votes are modified by how well you did on the test. And eventually we'll create psychological profiles of students if we see that there are patterns of some students learn better from these types of sources, some students lose better than these types of sources, which changes what's being recommended to you. As a student, you can also upload your own notes or create your own learning videos uh, or, or whatever type of content you want to this system. And hopefully we'll have a way that you will be able to receive some form of remuneration if a bunch of other students end up using what you're creating. Um, as you uh, move through this tree, you will... Uh, occasionally hit authentic assessments these are real these are where your skills are tested in a real world environment an example might be having to write a fan fiction and seeing how many five-star reviews it gets uh, these authentic assessments are actually so we talk about this broadly here but they're actually chosen by the students so you know every so many nodes a student uh, would propose an authentic assessment um, and if it gets approved, then it goes into the system. Once we have a large uh, volume of student authentic assessment data, we can tell which students are in real world environments actually performing well. And then we can grade the individual multiple choice questions, which represent the other tests in the nodes against their ability to perform in real world environments. After they graduate, we'll be able to get even better data, which it's wild that this isn't done in our existing school system, that we don't like grade individual questions off of how well that they predicted actual success among students. Uh, but again, it's because the existing system isn't really optimizing for student success, they're optimizing for college admissions, uh, but and and state testing, but and even still that. not doing a great job apparently because it's worse than doing nothing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so what we what we then do is uh, to prevent the extrinsic intrinsic reward problem. Uh, which is if you have an intrinsic motivation to do something, you will do it much better. Um, this is why, you know, in unschooling, the things that a kid is passionate about, they do really good in. Uh, but a problem with unschooling that I think a lot of unschoolers sort of refuse to admit to themselves is kids don't have an intrinsic motivation to learn everything they need to know. And yes, it's true. A spiky skill set is probably better than a perfectly rounded skill set. But um, 
you still want some motivation to, to have some level of well-roundedness. You know, you don't want like a first grade education in math or something like that. Um, and so the way that we do that is we dynamically uh, offer more reward the further a student is behind in a subject. So the further behind within a skill tree a student is, the more points they get for completing a test and the points they get are a multiple of their score on that test and how far behind they were in that subject. Um, and they need to get a certain number of points to stay in the official version of the school. So there's gonna be two versions of the school. One will be like a sandbox that will be pretty inexpensive for parents to use, which is for parents that just want to self-direct this whole thing and have their students engage with the system. The other will be more proctored, have people the students are regularly engaging with, have coaches, and have the um, democratized nepotism system that we've been working on as well. So when we were doing a lot of research into you know, what leads to people to be successful, it's really connections to high profile people within fields that leads to success. And so we help students when they get a few years ahead in a subject to begin to work directly in that field. Um, so this allows them to, uh, you know, if, if they're really far ahead in like botany or something, uh, either we will have a botanist in our network already who has agreed to work with students, or we will have a student uh, cold email and we will help them because cold emailing and knowing how to cold email and work with these people is really important. Um, and they will be judged, uh, graded on their ability to achieve success in real world environments. Uh, we will also have an in-house PR team and we have an in-house venture capital team. I was actually just meeting with the guy who runs it because we're already partnered with them. It's the uh, 1517 fund, which is Peter Thiel's fund, which specifically invests in high school students. Um, so, uh, and obviously they invest outside our school as well, but we have a, a partnership with them and we will do events where we source from our school and surrounding schools, um, uh, uh, like startup competitions and stuff like that. Uh, but the idea is, is that everyone who's graduating from this system either is a publicly known person in their field of expertise or is, has a cash positive business to their name. Um, because, uh, that, that, I mean, that's what I want for my kids. So that's what we're optimizing for. Um, and I, and I think that it is possible for the paid system, given that the paid system will be something that is pre-selecting off of motivation when students apply. Now we have a very odd admission system, um, which is, is the, uh, grades kids on, we call it for gifted kids, but we mean gifted in I will, not IQ. Um, and so what we do is uh, the students have two, two portions of their application system. They submit a what matters most to me and why, which can be anything. It can be a TikTok, it can be an essay, it can be a video. Um, there's many ways to communicate within our current context. So this is to understand, do they have like a logical framework of reality and a goal that's not just what people have told them that they should be optimizing for. Um, because I think that that's really important, like a, a true north for a student. Um, and then the, the second thing that we uh, optimize around is, is after they are tentatively admitted, uh, they then, um, or, or, well, so as part of the application process, they propose a project and a timeline for that project. And they get tentatively admitted based on these two things. But if they don't complete the project within the timeline that they gave us, they, the admission is withdrawn. Uh, so it's to see, can they compete in real world environments? And I have confidence that all the students who get into the school who can pass this and who are in the official, like engaging with the other students iteration of the school, that I can achieve this outcome from them of publicly known figure or cash positive business. Um, and again, my background, like if you look at my educational background, um, it, 
Stanford Business School MBA, and my undergrad was in neuroscience, biology, and psychology. So um, I, I focused a lot on on sort of these areas, and I've been working with a lot of young people, helping them start companies. Um, so I'm I'm fairly confident that I can I can get them to that outcome. Yeah, you have that uh, skill set that has already pre-selected for knowing how to uh, get the best of the people that you're trying to optimize for. Going back to um, just sort of the gamification a little bit, and I saw a video, must have been probably a couple years back now, that sort of like perfectly explained my feeling as a kid surrounding this intrinsic extract. And, and oh my gosh, I can't say that word today. I'm going to skip it. Yeah, intrinsic yeah, extrinsic yeah, award. Anyways, yeah, continue. Um, but I was like so bored out of my mind in school that in like the first grade, I literally just cut my pants off because I not like cut holes in my pants. I cut my pants clean off because I was so bored. And at the time, didn't realize that it was entirely like time gated by the progress of people in the other class. And then this video was relating it to why, like, do you feel or were you a big video game player as a kid? And I was like, yes, this is perfectly me because you're never limited in a video game by the, uh, by some outside means mobile games aside but like there's all you can always progress to the next skill level as long as you meet the required skill threshold to get there so it feels like optimizing for that within an educational environment as well where as soon as you've proven that you have the ability to complete this node you can move on to the next thing and that sort of gamification of learning obviously is becoming more popular, but I think this just sort of takes it to the next level there. Yeah, and, and I think we need to engage with kids emotionally in different ways than just extrinsic. So I remember when I was a kid, one of the things that really motivated me to learn is whenever I felt like I was learning like forbidden knowledge, like something way far ahead of what I was supposed to be learning. Um, and so, you know, within our system, it'll have like warnings, like you are dangerously far ahead of other kids your age. You should really be, you know, um, focused on other things. And that will get them to be like, oh no, now I really need to learn more. But then there's other things like emotions that we have cut out of our educational system, like shame. Like you are dangerously far behind other students your age in this subject. You, you, you're gonna look like a dumbass as an adult. Um, and, and, and we will also do that, but also kids are really, really sensitive to social pressure. So um, there was a scene in a Starship Troopers where they go and they look and it's publicly posted how they are all doing in comparison to each other. And that's something that we're, we're building into our system for sure. Um, now, what's important is, it, because the kids will be interacting primarily with other students in virtual environments, um, so that, you know, these will be attached to their identity, how far are, are ahead or behind they are. Now, what's great and a huge problem with the existing school system is it judges kids on a single metric. Um, and so that means, you know, 80% of kids always won't be in the top 20% of a class. But because we're judging kids on so many independent metrics, kids will always feel exceptional in one area if they are trying and like baseline competent. Um, and I think that that's also really important because it allows them to build an identity around their strengths, which further reinforces the time they build into those strengths. Um, you know, as we say, the original educational pipeline was sort of built to create replaceable parts, which is a really brilliant model until like outsourcing and AI was invented. And now it's like the single worst thing you can be is broadly interchangeable with anyone else who has about the same score as you. So we try to harness 
many different things that can motivate a student to do well. Um, and again, we have two iterations of the school. So a lot of uh, people who want to use our school are more like traditional unschoolers. They're like, I don't want my kid to have this extrinsic intrinsic award thing. I don't want them to have any sort of points chasing them. I don't want them to have, I just want them to have this skill tree and they complete it at whatever rate they want to complete it, right? And we will have a product that allows for parents to engage with, with the educational pipeline that way. However, for like the elite iteration of the school, uh, yeah, we want it to be quite brutal in terms of social pressure and stuff like that, uh, because I think that that's really the way kids engage with things. And our existing educational system has focused so much on removing the possibility of failure um, and removing the possibility of anything that could create a negative emotional experience for kids, that they've created this sort of black pall which rests over the student's entire existence. How excited are you about the sort of uptick in AI and advances in ed tech as it relates to some of the furthering of education in, in your... It was amazing. It's amazing. So originally with our system, we had uh, it, we were building out a, a network of tutors so that students could, instead of um, going through, uh, you know, if they, if they were like, I just can't learn this from the materials I have listed here, I'm gonna need a tutor. And so we're like, okay, how can we make this as inexpensive as possible while still judging the teachers based on their actual ability to help these students perform better on tests instead of like allowing them to judge themselves. It's just like an insane thing that we do that. The teachers are like, yes, I both grade students and judge. Anyway, um, so anyway, we, we, we were looking at this and uh, what we came to was um, we sort of threw it out. We we're like, screw it. AI can do this better. Um, AI, you know, it, it, and, and this is the truth, you know, and I, and I, I, I do not mean to disrespect or overly disrespect teachers because I know a lot of people go into it with good intentions, but your average teacher in a public school is just not that educated. Um, they are... Uh, yeah, they're they're wildly and, and as I mentioned, like you know, the IQs of people who go into education as a degree, it's it's just uh, they're not that highly educated. And what that means is is if I'm comparing them with an AI, which literally has the education level of like a PhD at Yale, like of course the kid's going to be able to learn more with, from an AI. And AIs are advancing so quickly. I mean, even the concept that that having AI tutors that students can go to outside of these you know, public sources to learn this information, it, it, it transforms everything. Um, I, I would say that schools were insane, um, that they're still operated the way they were before AI, like in the age of the internet and video and everything like that. But now that AI exists, it, it will become increasingly comically preposterous that, that, that teachers would go to any, that students would go to anything other than AI to learn advanced concepts. Yeah, it's the uh, calculator analogy, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's more than the calculator. So yeah, the, you, you know, the, the, I, I love the calculator analogy where teachers are like, oh, you won't have a calculator in your pocket when you're older. And it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah everyone does. Um, but it's more than that. It's that you, you are asking yourself, I mean, not a, a, an AI assistant, but I mean an AI as a teacher. Like, why am I, if an AI can outcompete an existing teacher on like, literally every single metric except for like human warmth why aren't i using an ai uh and then using a human to just fulfill the human warmth metric which is the way our school is structured so students meet with a proctor who who is 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 trained we've worked really hard on building sort of a psychological training framework because that was my background um that is uh 
you know, uh, much closer to like a a psychologist-like thing uh, than, than a teacher, but it's focused on making sure that their emotional development is going well and that they are, you know, socializing and, and building out their self-identity well, which I think are the areas where a human is still going to have a useful touch. But when it comes to, like, learning math or learning chemistry, like, it's comical that you wouldn't use an AI, especially given how advanced they're getting. Yeah, and given that the main outcome of your program in particular is, like you've mentioned a couple times, the flourishing in sort of these real-world situations, and yet, like, I don't think I've ever heard that as an outcome that's talked about from traditional schooling. Are people just, like, fully in denial, given this AI arc and everything else that's coming, that the skills that we require today are entirely different from the skills that we required 40 years ago when uh, they were in school? Like, is it just full denial? Yeah, I think um, I think if you are approaching the problems in education as an outsider, you could believe that like there must be somebody like like it's it it, it it they must be at least thinking about student outcomes in a real way. Um, but my from from you know having engaged with the field, uh, I am seeing increasingly that they're not. So we're really close to a number of people at Teach for America. Um, and if, if people don't know this, Teach for America is, is basically falling apart right now. Um, and, and you could say, why is it falling apart? It's falling apart because they can't get people to join. Now, Teach for America used to be the number one employer for Ivy League students around the world. It used to have this, if you looked at the outcomes from it, they were just astonishing. But the problem was, is it became a threat to the teachers unions. And so the teachers unions now said, Teach for America is naughty, you're hurting the established teachers if you go into it, right? Um, they then sort of broadcasted this through the progressive political machine, and all of these young kids, you know, most of the kids who want to go into teaching do have a progressive bent to them, were taught, Teach for America is naughty, don't go into Teach for America. So now Teach for America is looking for more scalable solutions to the school problem, and they're, 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 they're working on it in different ways. But, I mean, to me, that you would burn down an organization that was obviously as effective, obviously as aligned to you, and obviously as as genuinely non-threatening to teachers unions. It just disrupted their power hierarchy where it showed that, oh, here's actually a more efficient way you could do that. And and the way, the reason they had to burn down Teach for America was because they couldn't allow anyone within this larger teacher ecosystem even really thinking about how to make education better. Um, that was a no-no. You can't think about how to make education better. You can't really approach it. Um, and so I, I genuinely think that there is just so little thought outside of like a gimmicky things about how to, in a large scale, make education better, uh, that, that no, they're not thinking about it. It's not on their radar. Like they're broadly aware that like, yeah, it's going to go, but then they'll dismiss it with like, well, it lacks the human touch. Um, and it's like, <laughs> okay. Um, I think where this is really going to blow up in their face is when it becomes common knowledge among parents uh, that if you send your kids to a non-AI-assisted educational system, they are not able to compete in the current economic ecosystem. But a lot of people just continue to live in delusion. You know, They see the world as sort of ideological team sports, and they play by their team's rules. Yeah, and as far as the like human touch element... Uh... I don't know if it was a study. Well, it has to have been a study. Um, they were looking at um, 
uh, AI doctor versus human doctor, and they have now determined that somewhere in the realm of like 80% of people preferred even the um, the tact of the AI's answer versus an actual human doctor in terms of like bed manner and stuff like that. So even that as an argument is starting to go out the window, I think. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I've been to grocery stores. People are like, at first, they're like, oh, I'll continue to use the regular checkout. Then self-checkout comes along, and eventually, you know, um, and, and then you're going to get, like, grab-and-go, you know, like Amazon, right? Um, or San Francisco. Oh, boy. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but anyway, um, no, so so you, 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 you will have uh, AI iterations which may make even our educational system obsolete eventually. Um, but I don't think that we're quite there yet, and I don't think that we'll be there within the timeline of my kids' education. So I'm working to improve this system as quickly as possible. Um, so that, uh, and, I, and I do think it integrates very well with AI systems, which I'm really excited about because they're so important. You know, um, even just in my daily life, uh, uh, in the same way that with, you know, the last generation, everything was like learn to code and you'll be infinitely more employable. Uh, I think this next generation's mantra is learn to integrate AI into the way that you do everything um, and you will be infinitely more employable. You know, uh, my wife is like, oh, I need to do this. Okay, I'll use AI to learn how to code this app for me and then I'll plug it into something else I'm doing and then it can integrate AI with this other thing I'm doing in a different way. And just learning to think like that is really important, but that requires an enormous amount of trust in your own ability to solve problems and to like go out there in individual agency and a, a, um, a internal uh, mod nexus of control. And, and, and uh, that's just really hard to get with any of the existing teaching models, which are based around appealing arbitrary bureaucrats. But, but I, I shouldn't just be complaining about the, the mainstream existing education model. Another model that my wife and I complain about constantly is um, project-based learning. Um, so project-based learning is like you get this concept where these rich people are like, well, let it, what if we could integrate like all of the things that they're learning into like real world like project type things? Um, and you see this over and over and over again. Um, and it makes sense if you're like a rich person and you can hire like one tutor to dote on your little Jemmy and, and go through and accurately prescribe like awesome projects to them that are mentally engaging to them. But it does not scale. It is not a scalable system. Um, and this is why a lot of these school systems that are being built by like billionaires and stuff like that, that really lean on project-based models are just never going to compete with the mainstream school system in the way that ours could, or the Acton system could, or Afton. Acton. Yeah. Afton or Acton. Yeah. Acton. And so the, the end game of this, uh, for you is slightly different potentially in terms of, uh, scalability in that you're trying, uh, I don't know if this is still the plan, but the website exists, of uh, Project Eureka. Yes. And I don't know how familiar if you are at all with uh, Bology's network state concept. Oh, very yeah. familiar. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm part yeah. of So how network. does, uh, do you envision something like Project Eureka fitting into this network state model eventually? Or is it truly were... Um, Where we cite Project Eureka, we cite it as sort of a okay. failed project. So it's what the Collins Institute came out of. So we were thinking, um, you know, how do you uh, rethink child rearing? How do you rethink the city concept? And so we're like, well, what if instead of building a town around like a golf course, like you have these planned communities around golf course, you built it around like a totally walkable town 
around a uh, a school, right? Like a, a super advanced new model school system. And that's where we started developing this, but we were also developing a real estate project around it with the idea being what determines the value of real estate most, it's the quality of the local school system. So if you can buy real estate in bad school areas and then essentially transform it into a really high quality school system that is coming from you know uh, payments you're making into the area, Great system. Um, we ended up not being able to raise money for it because what we realized is uh, now we know like the number one funder, uh, Patrick Friedman, who funds a lot of um, he runs the fund that does these uh, not network states, charter cities. And we're affiliated with many charter cities. So we actually the Collins Institute became partnered with Praxis, which was looking to start in its own country. It like was looking to buy um, essentially a country. Um, and we also work with um, oh, what's it called? Free. Free, I forget the, the the one um the one down in South America, Honduras. I want to say anyway, um uh, but yeah. So there's a, there's a few network state projects uh, that we are really close with. So we were originally thinking along the lines of like network state related stuff. Um and and the idea is it's like could we build this with like a nanny? Could we have the kids integrated into like local stores, local entertainment centers? into like really get the kids, create the new sense of community. Um, and uh, the reason it couldn't get funded wasn't because we didn't have interest. We actually had a bunch of people sign up for it. But what we learned is that uh, it, venture capitalists have a really big problem with going into projects that have a lot of real estate associated with them. Um, and real estate investors have a really big problem going into projects that are new ideas. Um, and so there just wasn't a capital source where somebody had um, you know, an investor group that was interested in something like this. So we were just like, ah, it's probably not worth it. And we can reach a wider scale and solve more problems by, by doing just the school system because we were having so much luck with how we had developed that model. Um, uh, and now people will be like, oh, you can do the PropCo, OpCo model, which, you know, we talked with a lot of people who had done this, but the reality is, is almost no one without pre-existing connections, like who didn't already work at a private equity firm, has raised money into the PropCo, OpCo model. It's more of a fantasy than something that has ever actually worked. Um, so... Uh, it's like a theoretical way you could raise money, um, and some people have, but like actually their first funder was their last boss or their dad. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a it was a, it was a fundraising issue, not an interest issue. Is there a part of this whole journey into the education world that um, you're excited about but don't get to talk enough about? No, <laughs> no. I mean, we have a podcast that releases an episode literally every weekday. Um, and these are like 30, 45 minute episodes. So, um, I, I talk constantly, um, and we've written five books, uh, one of which was a bestseller this year on the Wall Street Journal. So we're excited about that. Um, and, uh, it's, it's actually really well liked by the crypto community. This is the one on governance. Um, uh, but my favorite is probably the private scatecrafting religion, but again, not about education. So yeah, we work in a lot of different areas. Um, uh, I, I guess. No, I don't. I, I do not have something that I don't talk enough about. Um, I talk too much about everything. Um, but if you want to see my education stuff, you can just Google, uh, you know, uh, education. Um, I, I think actually, okay, here's an area that's interesting is the politics of all this. Um, so education, like winning the educational game is a game of politics uh, because you've got to get into these voucher school systems You've got to, so a, a great example here um, is, uh, you know, the Texas problem, right? Like, how do you get around that? 
And the way that we've gotten around that is we're looking at once we do go into the voucher system, which we won't go into with the initial iterations of our product, which are more just going to be the cheap one for unschoolers and then the, the one that's more for like really intense elite like kids. Um, but then the, the state version, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to build a certification system that will hopefully allow people who work at counter cyclical community institutions to act as proctors to kids who are learning. Um, so these would be institutions like local public libraries, um, local, uh, museums, uh, local like planetariums, stuff like that, uh, local community centers, which would allow uh, the voucher funding instead of flowing into some like mindless private equity owned company, uh, a lot of it could flow back into local communities and it could still act as a job program while providing additional utility outside of this, you know, boring, ugly school system. That's fair. Uh, so I guess, <laughs> I guess that's it. But that's like me trying to play the politics game here. Like a lot of this is a politics game and a lot of my positioning, even in an interview like this, is being very aware that I am never going to be able to bring the Democratic Party around on trying to fix the educational system, given how important the teachers unions are as a voting bracket for them. Um, so any approach that goes into this, and this is something I've actually talked with Teach for America about. I'm like, you know, you could brand yourself as conservative and you would get people again. You'd get competent young people again, but they can't. You know, they're, they're, they're too afraid. Their, their leadership is too afraid. Um, but anyone who's really trying to fix the educational paradigm right now, unfortunately, gets this conservative branding, even if they don't want it, even if that's not how they came into things. Yeah, I mean, that's a larger conversation of of people not being able to hold anything that isn't a single party view at this point. Um, having any sort of agency or nuanced yeah. idea is now entirely uh, a false nomer. So. Well, Malcolm, I appreciate you joining me. It's been an hour, and this has been a fantastic conversation. If people want to learn more about the Collins right. Institute and uh, everything that you're building, where can we send them? Yeah, you can check out collinsinstitute.org. That's where we're doing Collins Institute stuff. You may want to add yourself to like some list if you want your kids to do it. Uh, I was just talking with my wife today about how we're going to do pricing for the cheaper iteration, and the plan right now is it would be uh, 1K for your first kid per year, $500 for your second kid per year, and then free after that for any more kids you had. Um, this is, again, a longer Leaning into the pronatalist. make it very inexpensive <laughs> for large families. Um, but the idea, that, that that's what we're looking at right now. We hope to go live with it at the end of this year. If you want to see just more of like me pontificating on intellectual topics, you can check out our podcast, Basecamp, which is pointlessly prolific. Um, or you can check out our five books. Um, I produce too much content that is uh, uh or you could just google my name i mean we're in the news all the time we're, we're regularly pissing people off which is very fun um we had a the elite couple breeding to save mankind meme go around about us this year that was a, a joy <laughs> well listen if you're not pissing some people off then you're probably not doing anything important enough with your life anyways so well, Robert, Malcolm, i appreciate you fun. coming on all right <laughs>